0: I don't know if there was a defining moment in your youth or in your life, one that shaped you, one that rattled you, one that t- typically kind of changed the way that you saw the world, the way that you thought, the, uh, everything. I had a moment, and I, for me, in my, uh, in my youth, as I was like the kind of peak teenager, and that was September 11th, 2001. Uh, a a date that for, for many of us who are like my age and a little bit older, I mean, you remember vividly. You remember where you were. You remember what happened. You remember who told you. You, you remember every little time you watched on the TV and where it happened. It, it was a giant tragedy. It was a It was evil on display. We all remember the emotions we felt. Anger. Despair. amid sadness. We remember that, that day very vividly. It's always interesting to me how mankind responds in the midst of tragedy. Even thinking of September 11th, 2001, it's interesting to think how different people in our country responded. People are typically looking for someone to blame, something to blame, and they feel very emboldened to blame whatever they want, if whatever their little mind comes up with as to why something could have happened. For instance, September eleventh, two thousand one. You can go look it up. Fact check me, Pat. Pat Robertson, 700 Club, Jerry Falwell, very famously blamed the attacks on 9-11 and on the Pentagon on homosexuals in our country. He said, without a shadow of a doubt, it was God's judgment on our country because of homosexuals. Very bold declaration of him to make. It's not just 9 11, though. You gotta fast forward 11 11 years later. We're about to come up on the the 10th anniversary this year of the, the Sandy Hook shooting, where 28 people were killed, a good majority of which were young elementary age students. A tragedy happens, and instantly, what happens? People are looking for something to blame, somebody to blame. They blame policy, they blame, you know, some people blame, well, it's because of guns. Some people blame, well, it wouldn't have happened if there were already guns in the room and someone had a gun to shoot the bad, I mean, you just go back and forth. It's, it's nothing more of a dialogue. It's, it's the blame game. More than a heart that has compassion, more than a heart that is just feels a very just a sober sadness over what happened and a brokenness over sin and injustice in the world, there's a blame game. Or you it may not be a terrorist attack, may not be a school shooting. It it might be people dying of COVID. We see it on the news, we 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 see it on social media. Oh, so-and-so died because of COVID because they didn't do X, Y, Z. That's why that happened. They were foolish. They were dumb. They got the shot. They didn't get the shot. They wore the mask. They didn't wear the mask, etc., 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 etc. Instead of embracing tragedy for what it is with sadness and humility, we look for things to blame. And often we look for things to blame that make ourselves look good, prop us up as the standard of righteousness and goodness and wisdom in the world, and tear down others as a sign of foolishness, sin, etc. And in those moments... We're oftentimes trying to figure out, what's God doing? What's he up to? We assign motives to God. God did this to this person because this person did this. God didn't allow this for this person because this person did this. And in the midst of tragedy, while we cannot always figure out what God is doing or why he's doing it, We do know this from God's Word. No matter what our circumstances, whether good or bad, we know this, friends. We do know how God is calling us to respond day in and day out for the rest of our lives. That is my main point this morning. And it is this. God is calling all men everywhere to repent and walk in obedience. God is is calling all men and women, all people everywhere to repent and walk in obedience. We will see that in the in our text this morning. We've arrived. We finally arrived, friends, in Luke chapter 13. Turn in your Bibles to, to Luke 13. As we, if you're if you're new with us, if you're a guest, we are preaching through the gospel of Luke. We have been for, I don't know, I, I, I've kind of lost track, but a, a long time. And so we go verse by verse. Quite honestly, I was—we've uh, got some friends in town, and, and I was talking to my friend Caleb last night. And you know, they're, they're, if if uh, if we just cherry picked verses from the Bible that uh, that we just want to preach, that we're excited about preaching, that we're like that, this probably wouldn't be one of those texts that I would just cherry pick to preach. But I am grateful that at the, for, for a church that we've decided that, that we're going to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, which causes us to not skip texts like this one, challenging texts, texts that rub up against our, our pride and our sinfulness and call us to repent. So this morning we're going to be in, in Luke 13 verses 1 through 9. Please follow along as I read. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered them, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. My main point, again, God is calling all men everywhere to repent and walk in obedience. Let's dive into that. Point one, Jesus calls us to repent of our sin. Jesus calls us to repent of of our sin, in the, in the first five verses of this passage, we're, we're, we encounter two tragedies. One that um, those who were listening to Jesus bring up, those who he had been teaching all through through uh, chapter 12, they listen to his teaching, and then they bring up this, this circumstance. Jesus brings up another circumstance. Both are tragic. This first one, uh, the, those that are listening to Jesus, they bring to his attention involved um, some Galileans whose, whose blood was spilled by Pilate. Okay, we don't we don't really know much about this instance. Uh, Josephus, the great historian, really gives us no uh, no information. There's nothing really recorded about this event. There's a lot of speculation as to what it could be, but dates don't line up, um, cities don't line up, etc. So we really truly don't have any good concrete historical background into what this uh, this instance could have been, where Galileans' blood were spilled and mixed with their sacrifices. But apparently, there was this atrocity, okay? That's what we do know. An atrocity that happened where Pilate had some Galileans killed while they were offering their sacrifices. Now, we know enough about uh, the Word of God, and we know enough about uh, the Jews that, that the only place Jews could have offered sacrifices was where? At the temple. And most often, with mass sacrifice, it was likely around the Passover time, okay? Okay. We really don't know much else about the situation other than that. That they were going to worship. They were going to make sacrifice. And in the process of going to make sacrifice, they were killed by Pilate, the Roman official. All right, And so they could have been killed for a variety of reasons. Pilate was not a kind man. He was an orderly man about his own glory. He cared about order in the empire. That's what we do know about Pilate. Now, we knew nothing else about these Galileans. We do know this Galileans tended to be a little rebellious. They they tended to be a little bit more about, about their freedom, okay? And 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 so maybe their, their lives that were living about their freedom kind of rubbed up against the priorities of the empire, and maybe they maybe they deserved what they got because they broke the rules of the empire. And so, breaking the rules of the empire, Pilate might come, and that was their choice. So Pilate chooses to, to have them killed for it. Who knows? We really don't know. They could have been criminals who were caught. They could have, they could have been robbers. They could have, they could have murdered But We don't really know what they did. But the reality is, as they were making sacrifices, Pilate sends officials in to have them killed in cold blood, likely as an example to everyone else around. And it was clearly a very controversial act as it made its way around all of the Israelites. It was, it, was, it was clearly a controversial act that likely would have angered the Jews. We also see another tragic tragedy. A tragedy where 18 people died when a tower fell on them. Just like that. They're in the water, they're in the pools, all of a sudden, tower falls on them. This wasn't an act of man. This wasn't a preconceived idea where a king or a ruler or a governor comes out and says, I I need you to go take care of some people for me. This this appears to be an accident. We we know that Siloam was a reservoir for Jerusalem. It was located near the south and east walls of of the city. And this death, again, while we don't know much about the incident, this incident, it was likely a, Type of construction accident where where the maybe the scaffolding or the tower fell on these people eighteen people just dead it was an accident it was what we would think of like a tsunami happens just a, what we often call just an act of God nobody to blame for it but in these two stories the Galileans that were killed by Pilate and the eight, and the eighteen Jews who were killed on this tower, Jesus gets at the heart of why those listening to Jesus would bring the story up in the first place, very quickly. Apparently, some in the crowd, maybe the whole crowd, we don't know, but some in the crowd were of the opinion that that these Galileans were murdered. In this shocking way, because of their sin, they were killed in cold blood while making their sacrifices because of their great sin. This was a common Jewish way of, of viewing things. We've actually talked about this before. Uh, you know that that when when someone was was uh, maybe they had a, a, a disease, or they had a demon, or they're paralyzed, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Very common Jewish way of thinking. It was because of their sin, or it was because of the sin of their family, or their parents. It was a very, very common way of thinking. Or the Pharisees, they were, they were wealthy, and they were powerful, and they thought well of because they had good external righteousness. And they must be really good people. Again, common Jewish way of viewing things. But, but it wasn't even just really just a common Jewish way of viewing things. It was very common throughout the whole ancient Near East. I would tell you today it's even common with us. But but we see this we see this episode in Acts twenty eight one through six. You don't have to turn there, but you can maybe write it down and read this story later if you like. Where Paul. He was, he was bitten by a snake. He, there, he's sitting there with some pagans, you know, he's sitting there by a fire, enjoying, like, you, you enjoy a good campfire ever, Paul did, and so, you know, he's drying off, he's been traveling, he's chilling, chilling with, you know, these folks that he's sharing the gospel with on the island of Malta, and Paul gets bitten by a snake. Snake just comes up out of nowhere and just bites him. And so these, these, uh, these natives, They came to the conclusion that because Paul was bitten by a snake, that he was a murderer. I mean, zero concern for Paul to get bitten by this poisonous snake, right? They're more concerned this bro might be, he must have just killed somebody. Something bad happened, bitten by a snake. Obviously that's God's um, lack of favor upon his life, so therefore he must be a murderer. Pretty funny, isn't it? What's even funnier is is, is what happens next. P- nothing happens to Paul. Paul doesn't die. Paul takes Paul takes a snake and just throws it away. And you know what they think he's next? He must be a god. <laughs> he goes from a murderer. He goes from being a murderer at one point because he gets bitten by a snake. Because nothing happens with a the snake, they think he's a god. I mean, one extreme to the other. This was the kind of. Of, of thinking that was very prevalent among Jews, very prevalent among, among the ancient Near East: blessings for being good, curses for being bad, very, very black and white. And I ask you, is there any credibility to such view? Is there any credibility? That bad things happen because of sin. Think about it. Many would say no. There is zero correlation between my situation and my sin. Zero. We've been taught that. I mean, for instance, we we would point to to John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. We're very familiar with this passage that that talks about Jesus passing by and, and he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Answer the question, no. There was no correlation between this man's blindness and his sin or his parents' sin. Zero correlation. God was working in a way that would bring glory to him in that situation. That's why God did that. Nothing to do with him. And so we can confidently say that, that our situations in life, when, when we're suffering, maybe, maybe, you, maybe you have had the death of a loved one, or maybe you've, maybe you've struggled through some terrible atrocities in your life. We can confidently say that, that you don't need to just simply look at your personal sin and think, man, this happened because I did X, Y, Z. God's Word tells us that. It's not a one-to-one correlation. But at the same time, Friends, there are a whole host of other passages that would point to sin's effects on our situation. A whole host. So, I mean, consider the context of blessing and obedience among the Jews in the Old Testament. It's very, very, very clear. Blessed, I, you bless, you, you follow the law, I will, I will bless you. You rebel from God, I will curse you. Very clear teaching, or or per- perhaps maybe we go to the proverbs and that speak of foolish choices often producing f- just foolish circumstances in your life. A lazy man should expect poverty. A hardworking man should not. Fairly clear teaching in, in the book of proverbs. But, but it doesn't just stop in the Old Testament. Perhaps we would, te- we would go to Acts 5, 1-11, through 11, and we see the story of Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit, and therefore they were struck dead because of their sin. Or we'd go to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine 29-30. And speaking of communion, where Paul writes to the church at Corinth to say, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Or 1 Peter 3.7, that says this, Likewise, husbands, live live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So, so what do we say? There sometimes is a correlation between your circumstances and your sin. Sometimes. Here's the thing. Who are we to figure it out? Because we're not God. We don't know. Well, that's exactly what it appears to be that these that were asking Jesus this question about the Galileans that were murdered by Pilate seem to insinuate that they somehow could figure it out. They could figure it out. We're making the assumption that they were killed because of their sin. But Jesus, Jesus here, whether or not sin has an effect on our situation isn't even exactly what Jesus gets at here. Jesus goes a bit deeper. Jesus engages their hearts. He engages their hearts right from the side. He stops them right in their tracks. There, there was an assumption. There was an assumption being made by these Galileans in in their hearts of those speaking to Jesus. There was an assumption that something terrible happened to these Galileans because of their sin. Because they were vile sinners, because they were worse sinners. And along with that assumption, as I think Jesus is pointing out here, they assumed that the lack of such a scenario in their own lives was a result of their own positive morality and righteousness. That happened to them because of their sin. This is not happening to me because I'm good with God. And in the midst of such great tragedy, where 18 people have died, where Galileans have died, isn't it amazing how quick these individuals speaking to Jesus just had such a self-righteous Attitude that focused on someone else's sin. Isn't it amazing? But, but but it's not amazing because we experience that in our own lives, right? We do. Isn't it amazing how quick we, and, and I even speak about myself, I'm like the chief of this. I'm not saying this in a pulpit as someone who's got it all figured out here. But isn't it amazing how quickly we can be to talk about the sin of other people? We obsess about it, we talk about it. We get together in our groups and, and we just we just talk very willy-nilly about sin. And we should, to a certain extent within our body, we're called to, we're called to call one another to repentance and to bear with one another, bear their burdens and, and, and to call each other to, to walk in righteousness. We are called to do that as a church. If we don't do that as a church with one another, we are not being faithful to what God has called us to be. Amen? To praise God when we do that. But oftentimes, if we're honest, it isn't for the good of other people that we do that. Oftentimes, we we love to talk about the sin of other people because as we tear them down, it is our goal to make ourselves look better. I mean, how rare is it for us to talk about the sins of others with a heart that isn't seeking to make much of ourselves? Are we honest? When we're bringing up the sins of others, are we really seeking for their good or are we seeking for our somehow looking better? How rare is it even to talk about our own sins at all? I mean, think of the proportion that you talk about other people's sins to the proportion that you talk about your own sin and you confess your own sin and I confess my own sin. Think of the proportion. It just shows how much more we think about how evil and vile other people are compared to how really basically good we think that we are. It's amazing. The sins of others, they just roll off our tongues so well, so easily, while the, con- while the confession of our own sin remains hidden. What should these individuals have thought How should they have responded to this murder? How should they have responded in this tragic event? What should we think when we experience tragedy, friends? Well, certainly sadness. Certainly anger at times. Certainly we should desire justice. However, when we we experience and and see the most horrific, tragic events There should be a moment of introspection. There should be a moment of introspection. And Jesus seems to insinuate that these people should have been a bit more introspective and taken stock of their own lives. You're worrying about these Galileans and their sinfulness. I'm pointing the camera back at you, friend. Oh, he says, he stops him right in his tracks. He's like, "Mm -mm. I'm not talking about the Galileans. It's like the famous Paul Washer moment. Where Paul Washer, he's preaching. He's, he, if you want to look up an amazing message, look up Shocking shocking Youth Message. It's by a guy named Paul Washer. I think it happened like 20 years ago. And there's a moment where he's preaching to youth and he's preaching about sin and he's calling the repentance and he's, he's railing against this uh, evil culture that we live in. And these youth, they're like clapping. And, and he says, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. And he gets silent. Near Jesus, he... I I can imagine that I can imagine the scenes are very similar. You got these Galilean, these these, these Jewish listeners, and, and they're coming to Jesus, they've heard his teaching, and they bring up this these vile sinners, expecting Jesus to riff on it, expecting him to talk about it, expecting him to agree to agree with all their preconceived notions. And Jesus says, No, friend. You you, you think that this happened because of their sin? I'm, I'm telling you right now it didn't. But I'm gonna point. The camera right back to you. I'm going to shine the light right on you, and I'm going to tell you this, friends unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. J- Jesus basically says, I don't think you understand, friends, but you are in grave danger. It's a thing, even today, most people don't think they're in danger, do they? We don't, especially here in America. Like danger is the last thing we think we got. You know, we, we've got we, we've got air conditioning. We've got a, we've got a, a, amazing armed forces. We've got a fairly stable government, like it or not, it's more stable than most around the world. You know, we got some money in the bank. We got a car. We got a house. We're we're pretty good to go. Most of us don't think that we're in any sort of danger. In fact, they think that they're basically good. Most people think that they're basically good people, good moral people that deserve really good things. I mean, I, I, may, not, I, I may not deserve a million dollars, I may not deserve a mansion, I may not deserve, you know, XYZ, etc. But I, but I certainly don't deserve suffering. I certainly I certainly don't deserve to have some naggy wife. I certainly don't deserve to have bad kids. I certainly don't deserve to have all these things that, like, that happen to me. We basically think that we're really good moral people that deserve really good things. Because what we do is we look at ourselves, think much of ourselves, and we compare ourselves to like Al-Qaeda. Well, at least I'm not Al-Qaeda, so God loves me because I'm not blowing up buildings. Because God's standard... Is me, and Al Qaeda violates me. There, I, I'm looking at myself, and I'm clearly better. What's amazing? You know, my wife and I and our family will often travel. We'll go to Disney World or something, and and, and it's amazing. We, we we bring these eight kids walking through Disney, and everybody's always counting us. Counting. They're they're always amazed at two things. They're counting. How did you bring eight kids to Disney? We do it. It just happens. It's fine. We love it. Don't worry about it. But second, I know you guys have thought this too. They look at my wife, and then they look at me. And then they look at my wife, and then they look at me. They look at my wife, and then they look at me. (laughs) And it's like, how did that happen? What happened? I mean, I I must confess here. Like like my wife is a ten, and I'm like a four and a half. All right. I mean, it's amazing. Like we were, my wife and I, we were we were in we were in Nashville this past week. We we, we got an opportunity to kind of get away a bit and, and be with each other at this Chick fil A event that we were at. It's, time, it's, it's times when I can just be with my wife that I'm just reminded how an, what, a, what an amazing treasure that she is. And how I genuinely, and I mean this with my whole heart, do not deserve my wife. Amen, Dad? Amen. I mean, I think back to our, to our dating. I mean, she was beautiful. She was flawless. Like, I mean, I know it's every girl's dream to marry a guy that's slightly shorter than her. I, I know that, uh, but that's kind of what happened. You know what I mean? Every girl wants to marry a guy who's slightly shorter, slightly uglier. You know, at the, at the time, I was making like 10 11 bucks 11 an hour as a manager at Chick-fil-A. You know what I mean? I brought nothing to the relationship. I, like when we got married, I, I brought a, a small amount of credit card debt and a Saturn 2002 Saturn SL. It was not a good, nice car, okay? I really didn't bring much to the relationship. My, my wife brought some savings. She brought, you know, a, a love for the Lord and a, a great family. She, brought, she even got a 2004 nice Toyota Camry with low mileage that, that we drove her. I mean, it was awesome. I brought nothing. And it's easy for me to think like, well, I'm a good guy. I haven't made a ton of mistakes. But when I compare myself to my wife, I'm not worthy. But God doesn't actually call us to compare ourselves to our wife or to our neighbor or anything else, actually, does he? Who is our standard? Jesus Christ because even the giant gap that our whole church notices between my amazing wife and me pales in comparison to to the gap between humankind and Christ, whom all the angels and elders in heaven constantly bow before and say, holy, 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 all day and all night. And they cover their mouth, they cover their eyes, they cover their ear, they cover it all because they cannot be, hardly stand to be in the presence of such a holy being. It's amazing, but yet we think we're practically good, don't we? We have to understand this, friends. This is vital if we're going to understand how to live in this life. We, we must understand that, that all disorder, all discord, all accidents, all catastrophes, all deaths, all suffering, all sickness, all poverty, and every other unpleasant thing in this entire world is a result of sin. All of it. It is a result of the curse. It is a result of the fall. All of it. Every relationship strife that you deal with is a result of the fall. Every time someone dies, we should be reminded of the fall. Every miscarriage, we're reminded of the fall. Every family abandonment, we're reminded of the fall. Every drug addiction, every depression, everything, we're reminded of, of the fall. Anytime we see, for instance, Gal- Galileans killed by Pilate while they're there trying to make sacrifices, we should be reminded of the fall. A tower falling on people, we should be reminded of the fall, we should be reminded of, of sinfulness. And it's not just that we deserve discord and disharmony and sickness and even death in this life because of sin. We don't just deserve that. Because of sin, we all deserve for all of eternity, friends. All of us. Yes, you. Yes, me. Because of sin. Because of our sin. Because of your sin. You personally, friend. Friend. My, me, my personal sin, we deserve not just death, but we deserve the eternal wrath of God. That is what you deserve. Maybe you've never been told that before. But that is what you deserve. You're not a basically good person that deserves God to give you good things. You, along with me, we are wretches. And the wretches of the wretches if those are words. But we deserve God's wrath in all of its fury, white, hot glory. But in the midst of that right now, in the midst of that being what we deserve, in God's grace, He just like with Adam and Eve, they did not immediately die, did they? They didn't. They weren't immediately given over to God's full wrath. Instead, in the midst of that, God gave them a promise that he would send one through the seed of the woman to crush the head of the servant, to break the hold of sin, to crush sin, to crush death, and to give us life everlasting. That's what he does. In God's grace, he doesn't immediately give us all that we deserve. Even now, in the midst of of. The, the the immense amount of evil in the world, God, believe it or not, is restraining evil, so that right now we are not even as evil as we possibly could be. You understand that? Like Al Qaeda, you know, ISIS, Hitler, weren't they weren't even as evil as they could have been? That's called God's common grace. He He is restraining evil. It is amazing what we see. The first first story after the garden is what the story of Cain and Abel. Right there, first little, first little brother couplet right there. They're you know, they're making sacrifices. God, you know, accepts the sacrifice of one. God doesn't accept accept the sacrifice of the other. So in his anger and his hatred of the Lord, Cain kills Abel immediately right there. So we see. But God right now is restraining evil. Apart from God's restraint, we would all just be nothing but a bunch of murderers. We'd kill our wife, we'd kill our kid, we'd do it. Apart from the grace of God, that's what we would all do. We are not basically good. Because God restrains the evil of man right now, and he restrains evil in your heart, in your neighbor's heart, in your wife's heart, because he restrains it, we can often assume that we are basically good and civil people, though. We don't chalk it up to God's grace. We chalk it up to our own efforts to make much of ourselves. But here's the thing, as I've said, we are not basically good people that deserve good things. Therefore, we can confidently say that any good in our life is a giant demonstration of the common grace of God that he gives to all men. And so we must not mistake God's common grace that God has given us as God's favor upon our lives. But that's what we do. God's given us common grace. And so we think in God's common grace, God gives common grace all the time. He gives, he, he gives even the most wretched, godless family. He'll give them money, he'll give them a home, he'll give them, he'll give them health, he'll give them even a happy marriage. They don't get a prison. They don't have, you know, tax problems. They seem to have a pretty darn good life in his common grace. And it's easy for a family like that that doesn't have marital strife, that doesn't have money problems, and seems to have it pretty good to think I'm a good person and I have no problems with God. God has no problems with me. Things are pretty good. Look at what I've done. I give to the poor. I might even go to church every now and then. I'm politically active. I teach my kids. I discipline my kids. My kids are good. They're Boy Scouts. Whatever, whatever, whatever. It's very easy for us to think that because our circumstances are are so good that God must be good with me. But we must understand, no matter how good our circumstances might be, no matter how immoral we might think we are, apart from Christ Jesus, friends, apart from Christ Jesus, we stand condemned. Apart from Christ Jesus, we stand guilty before a holy God, all of us. Each and every one of us. As Christ says, You all will perish. You all will perish. However yet, friends, Christ gives us good news in this passage. He doesn't say just you will perish. He first says unless you repent. There's an out clause here. Unless you repent, you will perish. Oh, see the grace in those three words, dear Christian, dear friend, this morning, unless you repent. See the mercy Christ offers here. See the grace that Christ offers here, friends, unless you repent. We see that grace and mercy that Christ offers to every repentant sinner. Is grace and mercy offered? And here Jesus, what what he does, he encourages these listeners to take stock of your own heart. Dear friends, you stand condemned. You will perish. You will perish. You will perish. You will perish because you're guilty. And you will perish unless you repent. You see, Jesus wasn't... Where perishing wasn't referring to being slaughtered by Pilate, but receiving the, the judgment of God. So, what did repentance involve? Repentance didn't involve a few outward acts. Repentance didn't revolve about just going to church, giving money to the poor. Repentance involved from turning from your sin and turning to Christ. Turning from walking against God with your whole heart, as Ephesians 2 tells us that we all once were, even those of us who are in Christ, we walked wholeheartedly with all that we are in every fiber of our being, no matter even if we looked moral on the outside, or Republican, or conservative, or homeschooling, in a good, all of it, apart from Christ, we walked so so far and so passionately against Christ with all that we are. We were God's enemies. And and repentance is it's, it's an about face. It's 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 completely following our own passions of sin and rebellion towards God and turning a complete 180 towards Christ Jesus. It's in that moment where we are so aware of our need for God's grace. And, but also at the same time, not just aware of our need for God's grace, but we also desire God's grace. You understand that, friends? We desire the righteousness of God, and no longer do we desire to follow the patterns of this world, walking as enemies of God. That is what he calls us to do, to turn from sin, to turn to Christ, to turn from allegiance to self, to turn to allegiance to Jesus Christ, to, to us being the Lord and Master of our life, to turning that Christ is the Lord and Master of our life. That is what he's calling them to do, to repent and to trust in Christ. And unfortunately, in this in this moment, These individuals, they were so blinded and consumed with their own self-righteousness, weren't they? They didn't see it. They didn't see it. They thought those Galileans that died at the hands of Pilate, they must have been really vile and they must have been really evil. God, I'm so glad I'm not like them. Oh, I wish that were just a problem with unbelievers, though. But oftentimes it happens in the church too. How, how do we encounter when a friend that we know goes through a divorce? How do we respond? Do we say, "Oh, I, I, I praise God, praise God that 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 I'm a great husband." Praise God that I lead I lead my family because they clearly got the divorce because they didn't. How do we respond when when our friends experience financial hardship? Well, they have financial hardship because they're lazy. They're irresponsible. They're dumb. Meanwhile, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. What about with wayward children? Friends who experience just the children that are way off, way off out there want nothing to do with the Lord, want nothing to do with the family. Oh, praise God that I'm not like that deadbeat dad that doesn't love his family, doesn't lead his family, doesn't teach, because I'm I'm the standard of what a godly father should be. God, help us, church. God, help us to repent of our self-righteousness because apart from the grace of God, we'd have nothing but torment for all of eternity. Oh, may we humble ourselves. May we not be like these Jews. May we see the call to repent of our self-righteousness and just cast ourselves before the mercy of God every day. Every day. Point two, Jesus calls us to walk in obedience. After Jesus tells these listeners, he puts them in their place. He sets them in the right direction. He, he tells them this parable, this, this story, this, about a man who had a, a fig tree. This fig tree was planted in his garden, and the fig tree kind of looked fine, looked healthy, but it wasn't bearing any fruit. What good is a fig tree if it bears no fruit, right? Not a particularly pretty tree. The point of the fig tree is to what? Bear figs. But this fig tree did not bear any fruit, so the man who owned the tree is like, "Uh, I'm going to go talk to my gardener. Gardener, let's tear this thing down. It's time. I've I've only got so much property, and so why is, is this fig tree taking up so much space in my lawn? I would rather tear it up, plant a new tree that will produce fruit. That is the desire of the man who owned the tree. And if we remember through chapter twelve and, and really most of Jesus' ministry here, he is talking to the Israelites, he's talking to the Jews. And 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 it's it's widely been said that here Jesus is in talking about the fig tree, uh, that that it, it would represent Israel. And so I believe Jesus is giving this parable to these Israelites here that's talking about hey, Israel has been uh, rebellious for very long, a very long time. There's never been this time where Israel finally in totality turned to Jesus Christ or turn, turned to God. We have the Old Testament which is constantly about the, the God giving grace to the Israelites and then they would just rebel and rebel and rebel and rebel. And, and here Christ, even in this moment right here, Israel is still not bearing fruit in, in with repentance. They're not. And so he ultimately says, and we're going to talk about this even in the next few weeks, God's judgment on Israel. But here... He's like, I'm gonna if they don't bear fruit, I'm gonna cut the tree down. I'm gonna kill it. That's what he says. And uproot it. I'm done. But he doesn't just say that. He doesn't just say, I'm gonna cut it down now. We see verse eight. We see, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put it on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. We see this point between the recognition of no fruit bearing, and we see a point of judgment. And what's it? it what's what's in between that that moment? It's called time. It's called patience. It's called forbearance. It's called mercy. Yeah, I, I know the the primary. The point here is that Jesus is talking about Israel, but I cannot help but think of my own life. The point where we grow up in church, we hear the gospel, we have parents that love us and tell us about Jesus. But there's that point. You know, we will finally hear the gospel and it clicks for the very first time. Or we repent of our sin. We trust in Christ and he changes us and he makes us more and more like Jesus. And we can for certain say at that moment that we've received God's grace, we're finally new. We're finally as children. It makes sense and I love Christ. And we think, dear God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your forbearance thank you that you did not chop my tree down earlier and throw me into the fire. Because there's been a point for all of us that we walk wayward, that we walk in disobedience. And we see here Christ pointing, yes, to his judgment, but also pointing us to his great mercy and his patience. Parents, may may we have patience as we disciple our children. Because God demonstrates patience and mercy. CBC, may we have patience with one another as we walk through life because God has patience with us. We serve a patience, a patient God, and his, his word tells us that it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. But Christ is calling for something here. He's calling for Repentance that bears fruit. Or in other words, he's he's calling for repentance that results in works. He's calling for repentance that results in walking in obedience. He's not talking, he's not calling for simply us to walk an aisle, say a prayer, make a verbal proclamation of our repentance, and be on with our day. He's calling for something that only the Holy Spirit can do, regeneration. Giving us a new heart with new desires. A new operating system, if you will. (laughs) That desires righteousness. That desires holiness. That desires to be like Jesus. Dear friends, that is a Christian. Not someone who just goes to church. Not someone who says and just does the right things but someone in their heart that actually loves Christ and desires to be like him and walks like it. Doesn't mean they're perfect. Doesn't mean they have no sin. But it does mean this, that when they do sin, they repent, knowing they have a merciful heavenly Father that will forgive them in Christ Jesus. We we look at 2 Peter 3, 8-14. We see God's patience on display. Peter writes, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach, what? Repentance. But, gives us two two views here. Leans really hard into the patience of God. Really hard into the mercy of God. But then verse 10 hits. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. God's patience isn't like slowly evaporating. There's a a moment where God's patience is over. Like a thief enters a home. You're not going to see it coming, friends. You will not see God's wrath and His judgment coming. You won't. You're not smart enough. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In other words, how then shall we live, church? 2 Peter 3.14 Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent. To be found without spot or blemish and at peace. Pursue holiness. In light of God's mercy, pursue holiness. In light of God's upcoming judgment, friend, pursue holiness. God's judgment should lead us to pursue holiness. God's patience should call us to pursue holiness. So dear friends, maybe this morning you do not know Christ. Maybe you do not know Christ. Oh, we speak of what it means to be a Christian and you say, Brian, I go to church. I do. I'm a good moral person. I think I am. But I don't desire Christ. I actually don't desire holiness. I don't desire any of it. In fact, I think I'm pretty good, and I, and I'm, but, but I'm recognizing there's a gap between what you say there's a Christian is and what I think a Christian is, but I see what you're calling for according to the word of God. Friend, do not wait. Do not presume on the grace of God. You could be the Galilean whose blood is spilled today. You could be those who, is, who are in the pond, in the pool. It's Siloam. The tower falls. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. Don't presume on the grace of God. Repent today. Repent today, friends. See the mercy that Jesus provides. See the grace he offers at the cross. See Christ, whose sinless body was put up on a cross for our sin whose body was pierced and his blood was spilled and the wrath of God was satisfied in that moment because he took the wrath that you deserve and that I deserve. And in that moment, he died. He laid down his life for us. His body was put in the grave. And on the third day, best news of all, amen, church, he rose. He rose. That when we put our whole hope and whole faith And all that we are, and we cast it right at the feet of Jesus, and we believe in him and trust that his death was sufficient enough to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. We can be saved. Friends, trust in Christ today. Let your sins be wiped away and be white as snow today. Do not wait. Walk in newness of life. And for Christians who have trusted in Christ, who have repented of our sins, and have trusted in Jesus Christ, dear friends, I will close with what J.C. Ryle said. J.C. Ryle said this. If we have already repented, let us go on repenting to the end of our lives. There will always be sins to confess so long as we are alive on earth. Let us repent more deeply and humble ourselves more thoroughly every year. A wise old saint once said, I hope to carry my repentance to the very gate of heaven. Oh, may we be a people that is quick to confess our sins to a holy God because we know just how sweet his mercy is. Because we're so quick to remember how gracious and merciful and forgiving forgiving he is, and how sovereign and loving he is in sending Christ to pay for our sin. For us Christians, may every day be a day of repentance and trust in Christ.